1: everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we've got an interesting show for you. We are going to be talking about Jesus. What a shock, talking about Jesus on the Christian Apologetics Podcast. But we're going to be talking about how he is the last king of Israel. You know, that's something pretty unusual to those of us who live in the, the West, for instance. I mean, I record the show in America, I live here, but I know there are listeners in many other places. I've had someone from France get in touch with me about the show, and I'm sure somewhere someone's listening to this, and they have a the concept of a king. Or they have a king, really. Here in the West, it doesn't make much sense to us. We're used to electing our officials, and we don't really have a king, per se. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to. That King is Jesus. So, who better to talk about the last King of Israel being Jesus than Michael Chung, who wrote the book Jesus, the Last King of Israel? He got his bachelor's at the Ohio State University, his MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and his PhD at the University of Nottingham. He's taught at Federal Theological Seminary, Texas, Houston Baptist University, Calvary Theological Seminary, Indonesia, and Houston Christian High School. He has also the author of Praying with Mom, from 2012, and has published academic journal articles in North America, Asia, and Europe on Gospels, power, spiritual formation, New Testament theology, and missiologies. He has also done missions and pastoral work. So, um, Dr. Chung, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me on, Nick.
1: Did I pronounce my name correctly?
0: Oh, yeah, Michael Chung. Uh, Uh,
1: I want to make sure there. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, could you tell us a bit about uh, who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing?
0: Well, yes. Thank you, Nick. Um, Well, I'm married with two kids. Uh, My son is Coleman, six. My daughter is Noelle, four. My wife is named Jody. She serves full-time as a youth pastor at our church here in Houston, Texas. Uh I have taught. I'm currently just writing and just uh, hoping God will open up a position somewhere at at, a, at some kind of a school somewhere but uh had the last few years to write and I was able to write this book and uh yeah, I'm really
1: excited to be on your show. Mm-hmm. So what got you to to write this book cuz really like I said, we don't think much about kings in the West do we?
0: Yes. Well, actually Nick, um I was a Paul scholar. My Ph.D. dissertation was on Paul, and I had done most of my publications on Paul. And uh, One uh, one Easter, about uh, 2014, I was just blogging. Um, At that time, Yahoo had a blog, and I I used to um, contribute to that Yahoo blog. They since have taken it down, which is unfortunate. But uh, at that time, I was just blogging on Holy Week, and I was really getting a lot out of it. And then I had a friend, she was enjoying my blogs and, and sharing it on her Facebook. And so after a while, I thought, well, I wonder if there's a book here. And I started doing research, and well, what I had before me, The Last King of Israel, that's that's what was the fruit of that time. Um, actually, Nick, you, you made a comment one time about the, the title, The Last King of Israel. Actually, the original title of the book was called The Ten Days of Easter. Mm. But no one liked that title.
1: Yeah.
0: And then I was going to call it The Ten Days of Passion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: that sounded a little bit too, you know, gimmicky, <laughs> gimmicky. So Yeah. Finally,
2: yeah. As I
0: was doing some, as doing some editing, all of a sudden it hit me, the last King of Israel and people liked that title. So that's that actually how I got the, the title. It wasn't the original. I, I originally wanted to title of this book, the, the, the 10 days of Easter. Um, but my wife was one of the many who shot it down. And you know, the Bible says we're two or three witnesses. Well, I have more than two or three mm-hmm. saying so not a good title.
1: Yeah, I think it says for two or three witnesses or your wife say something. That's what you're supposed to go with. Well, my wife
0: definitely is better than two or three witnesses, better than 300 witnesses. So Yeah,
1: and somehow I'm thinking, Jesus, 10 days of passion. I, that, I, I think that would be taken the wrong way entirely. Yeah. Well, there was a part
0: of me that was thinking marketing that, oh, 10 days of passion. It's theologically sound, but also plays to the cultural... Um, you know, unfortunately, cultural obsessions, but I felt that that was, you know, the integrity part came, and people just didn't like the the, the title in, in the end. So I, you know, you, you go with the community, and the community, they like the, the title of the last king of Israel, and I like it too. And uh, it, it actually does a better job, because uh, this is actually volume one. I'm going to write at least one or two more volumes on Jesus' life, so I can use
1: this title again. So, you talked about a uh, holy week, but then you've said... Ten days yes, yes, uh, we
0: often think of Holy Week as Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, um, and that is Holy Week I was doing my research I was John talks about two days before that mm. um, one day he travels from Ephraim to Bethany, and then another day he's enjoying the Sabbath until and then on Sunday he you know, he, he marches into, um, we, you know, we call it the triumphal en- entry or Palm Sunday mm-hmm. where he marches into Jerusalem on the donkey as the King. Um, but I found that those two days, I got a lot, um, out of just studying those two days before Holy week. And that's mm-hmm. why I looked at Jesus's last 10 days, not just, um, his passion, like what most or passion Week, like what most authors that write about this period will write about.
1: Mm-hmm. And, I have curiosity, since I'm sure some of my listeners might be wondering, why do we actually refer to this as Jesus' passion?
0: Well, oftentimes people refer to Holy Week as as Jesus' passion. Well, the the term passion is just a a way to describe Jesus' suffering. Mm -hmm. And usually people will, when they think about passion, they think about, well, like the passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson's movie, about almost 13, almost 15 years ago, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but passion week, uh, often refers to, um, the time when Jesus, you know, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, Mm -hmm. but people, the actual term passion is more associated with the suffering of Jesus. Mm -hmm. His passion, um, just like Good Friday really isn't very, if you think about someone getting nailed to a cross really isn't very good. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are terms that, um, people have used to describe Jesus's love for us. Mm -hmm. in more positive terms. And so passion, um, you know, again, is is associated with the suffering of Jesus. Usually Thursday um, in the Gethsemane um, through through the cross.
1: Yeah, because usually I think most of us, just like you said, we talk about 10 days of passion. We're not thinking about suffering. Yes,
0: yes. We're thinking about, you know, other things that are not quite as, is physically cruel, and that's why I, I'm glad I didn't use the ten days of passion. But I probably would have sold more more books because mm. people would be buying it, thinking it was a book on certain topics, and now like bait and switched. So, but that's okay. Mm. We do it for God, not for ourselves.
1: So, ultimately, what do you think you were learning the most about the Pet Holy Week, as you call it, when you started doing this research?
0: Well, I was really surprised, Nick. On and I don't want to sound um, sacrilegious here, but I was really surprised at how much time Jesus wasted. If that makes any sense, and mm-hmm. I, let me put the term "wasted" in, in quotes. Right. I mean, you know, you're a busy mm-hmm. guy. If you had ten days to finish your mission, you would just be feverishly trying to get it done. Um, Jesus elected to stay in Bethany, and um, you know, scholars are, are divided. They said, "Well, there's no room in Jerusalem. There'd be Jerusalem would be too dangerous." Um, but, you know, remember, he had to leave Bethany because of danger. Mm-hmm. And so really the, the Passover, the, the leaders would have been so consumed and Jesus would have been so public that there would have been that covering of Passover and all those people there that uh, I think he could have stayed in Jerusalem. But he wanted to stay with his Bethany friends and he spent a lot of time with them there. And then the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, it's not too far. It's about two miles but walking two miles is—that's uh, a lot of time. It's you know you're talking about an hour to two hours depending on your pace. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was just really surprised at how much time he spent <clears throat> with people he loved. But I guess that makes sense because if we if we knew our time was short, you know, in in the end, I think we would probably choose <clears throat> the same—is to spend as much time as we can with those we
1: love. And, and, you know, I like that you put "wasted" in quotes because we know theologically... Jesus couldn't have wasted time, as mm-hmm. it were.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> so,
0: so he spent a lot of time with you know with his Bethany beloved. You know, you, you think about it, he gets there on a Friday, um, and he really doesn't leave until Thursday night because after after he's captured in Gethsemane. So it's it's almost a week, you know, seven full days, There are six full days that he's spending um, with his with his beloved. And then, he's, of course, he's with his disciples, too. This is his last chance to impart um, lessons before he leaves. Well, he'll come back, obviously, after the resurrection, but, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm i thinking if it was my last ten days, I've spent a heck of a lot of time reading. I don't think I'd be spending hardly any time doing that, because, I mean, what are you reading for at that point? Is that going to be any long-term use? No, I'm just saying I'm going to spend as much time with Ali as I possibly can here and enjoy these last ten days.
0: Exactly, you want to spend time with those you love. I mean, Jesus did have a mission to fulfill, mm. um, but I guess the logical side—you know—you would expect that someone who's who knows his mission is almost done would spend a little bit more time. He, he did spend significant time, you know, preaching in the temple and and ministering in the temple, but. He's really spent a lot of time with those he loved, and there's evidence that he had two Sabbaths um, during that time. You know, obviously the typical Sabbath Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, but uh, there's evidence on Wednesday. That really, scholars are divided, but most scholars <clears throat> acknowledge that Wednesday is not a very high-activity day in the Scriptures, and some people believe that that's because there's another Sabbath during Passover that's being celebrated. And so Jesus himself... Um, you know, clearly didn't have any problems with doing things on the Sabbath, but given that that on Wednesday there seems to be a lot of silence, clearly disagreements amongst the scholars that Jesus himself was acknowledging, you know, rest. And and, and Sabbaths in the Bible are, are meant for ceasing from our work so we can connect with God and others. It's really just to free up more time for relationship, yeah. which in the end, in, you know, in the end, that's really what satisfies the human soul is relationships, not accomplishments.
1: You know, when you're you're talking about this, I'm thinking back to uh, when I had Holly Ordway on the show last year, mm-hmm. one of your, I think yes. you, you used to teach at HBU, so one of your former colleagues. Right, right, I've taught them. Mm-hmm. And we end up talking because she's not the culture and Allie and I are both into the gaming culture and mm-hmm. she was for a while too. And I started telling him about how we were listening to this video about a gaming phenomenon and where the, offer, the video was trying to say satanic and such, which mm. we thought was laughable. But he said, you know, all this time you are spending doing this game, you could be doing evangelism. You could be doing... Mm. And we, we just took that and thought, you could take that to the most ridiculous extremes possible and say, well, you know, I'm going to go spend some time with my wife, but I could be doing evangelism. I'm going to go and have a meal at a restaurant with some friends, but I could be doing evangelism. And it occurs to me, we could look at this for the exact same way for the last 10 days of Jesus, say, you know, you're going to go and spend time with your friends and Bethany and such, but, geez, Jesus, you could be doing evangelism.
0: Well, I, I think, again, that's a great point, Nick, and, and there's some people that struggle with that, um, that divide between the holy versus the profane, and uh, I think Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, um, really gives us a lot of insight into life when he turned the water into wine. No one was healed. I mean, people were already, you know, had drink, drank a lot, um, but he, you know, he basically turned the water into wine to prevent someone from losing their, their f- prevent someone from being shamed. Right. And it just kind of reminds us that recreation has its place. You know, Jesus allowed recreation because his first miracle really wasn't that dynamic. It was at a wedding party, mm-hmm. really to save someone from looking bad. And I just thought, oh, the, you know, Jesus is at that, spending that time at a wedding, and he's willing to use his power to help someone. I mean, it's just a reminder that, yeah, we, we want to give significant time for doing God's work. Um, but God's work isn't always just doing. A lot of it is being and enjoying and mm-hmm. enjoying each other.
1: As someone who very really makes an emphasis on honor, shame, thinking in the Bible and such, I really liked how you said this miracle was done to avoid shame. That's just spot on, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, it's something we all struggle with. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a predominantly Asian culture, and shame and honor is just mm-hmm. huge. Now, as I've done as I've grown older, I've realized that every culture, every human being shame manifests in different forms and even in, amongst the genders you know women tend to struggle with you know living up to expectations of what it means to be a woman in their culture men don't want to look at weak uh, appear weak I, i'm quoting Brene brown actually i'm not looking this is not my own stuff this is uh, dr Brene brown mm. who's done some extensive research on shame mm. and yeah. so and you see that manifest in the bible mm. and you just see how in the end you know we fight trying to be worthy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the Bible's message is, no, God makes me worthy.
1: If anyone's interested for further information on honor and shame, since we're not going to be talking about this whole podcast about that. Go back some some shows I've done, Warner Mischke, for instance, on the Global Gospel, or Randy Richards on Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, and next month we're going to have Jason on, co-author of Ministering in Honor and Shame Cultures. But for now, let's get back to This book that we're talking about here. Okay, so Passion Week. Let's start off day Mm -hmm. one of Jesus' final days. What important work is he doing on day one?
0: Well, are you talking about Passion Week or are you talking about my book? Are you talking about the final ten days? The final ten
1: days. What's he doing on day one?
0: Okay, well, on day one, great question. He's um, basically just traveling to Bethany. He's on a journey. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Ephraim, it's not the there's there's two Ephraims. There, scholars aren't sure where this Ephraim is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but the typical Ephraim is the one found in the Old Testament, and New Testament. Um, that's not this one. This is uh, scholars aren't sure where he went. He obviously went there because after he healed Lazarus, um, the Jewish the Jewish religious leaders tried to kill him.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: he left. Uh, most scholars believe it's about a week before um, Passover. But he's just traveling probably by foot from Ephraim back to Bethany because Passover is coming. And scriptures are very clear that Passover needs to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's doing. As a, as a good Jew, which Jesus was Jewish, he wasn't Christian, another sacrilegious term. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jesus himself was Jewish. And so right. he's, he's coming back, um, you know, to celebrate the Passover. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a strong journey motif in the Bible, Old and New Testament, Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of my chapter one talking about the journey, just just using Jesus's journey from Ephraim um, to Bethany um, as a as a discussion of just the journey motif in the Bible.
1: Mm-hmm. So Jesus is journeying to Bethany here, where obviously he's got a great sermon he has to deliver there, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes well he's, he's going
0: to celebrate the, he's going to to do the Sabbath, so mm-hmm. he's, he's going a few days before
2: mm-hmm.
0: the actual Passover. so he gets there on a Friday night um, and celebrates the you know, they begin the Passover, and that's day one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the The days I use in the book are actually my days are our days, not necessarily the biblical days. The biblical days are sundown to sundown, twenty four hour periods. So in jesus' eyes, Friday night. Um, after the sun goes down. It's actually Saturday. But for our calendars, you know, we don't, it doesn't turn Saturday until till 12 midnight. So I, I just try to keep it simple and, and use our you know, calendars based on the Romans versus the, the Jewish calendar. So this would still be Friday night when he's, he arrives in Bethany.
1: Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, that once he gets in Bethany, we have no record that I know of of a great sermon that he gives to the crowds. You have no record of a healing miracle, but he does at that point. I mean, am I no. wrong in
0: that? No, you're right. It's the Sabbath, so he he just gets there, and he's probably they're probably tired. They probably journeyed for a while, and they're just sitting back and probably just enjoying some. You know, Mar- Mary and Martha probably have plenty to to give. Um, you know, they probably knew that Jesus was coming, and um, they probably just have something simple before the Sabbath. And then uh, the next night, Saturday evening, is when they'll have a, a bigger meal
1: mm-hmm. but, after you know, the Sabbath. He could have gone straight to Jerusalem, but here, over five or ten days, he goes to Bethany, and it's not for anything, apparently, work-related, as it were. No healing, no mission, no sermon. He's just going to spend time with friends. That's so what I
0: think, yes. I believe he I believe he could have stayed. Again, the scholars are divided. They think that maybe Jerusalem might have been overpopulated. There might have been no room. Um, given how easy it was for Jesus to find a room for the Last Supper scene on Thursday, I think that he could have found lodging in Jerusalem. I believe, just as you said, that he his sole purpose was to spend the last days um, with his friends, knowing that his mission was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And just like you said earlier, you know, if we knew that our mission was coming to an end, we would want to spend as much time as we
1: could with those we love. Now, when we get to this point, we, we have a, a kind of problem also that arises. And this was to about on our last episode, if anyone's wondering, the Sam Shamoon interview on ISDOM, we had to push back. Allie and I had to go to Tennessee. We had a friend who has a five-year-old girl who had Down syndrome, and died suddenly. So, oh. we decided to cancel the show last week, but we are going to get him back on sometime. But, we had Michael Kona on before, and we were talking about differences in the Gospels, and one such difference was the anointing at Bethany. And, you've done some good work on this in your book, because, you know, some, one account says eight days before, one account says six days before. Do we have a contradiction here?
0: Well, that's a that's a really good that, that's a very debated topic on when did the anointing happen
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, the common the common thinking I, I haven't gotten to that section in Michael's book yet
2: mm-hmm.
0: but the common thinking and I, I'm assuming you've read Michael's book um, yes. but, but most scholars believe that it happened on Saturday mm-hmm. because John has written later and most people think that John corrected historical errors um, I I disagree with that. I think that Mark, um, I, I think the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark are, are correct in that it's on a Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I make an argument that got published in uh, um, the Bulletin for Biblical Research. I think your, Michael also published an article later that I argued that John was using a, a technique Um, called sandwiching, or, you know, the the technical term is called intercalation, Mm -hmm. where he he sticks one story in between another to communicate um, another fact. But I believe that John is not trying to communicate the anointing happened on a Saturday night, but he's trying to communicate how Lazarus will die Mm -hmm. using a a common, you know, something very common, which would be Jesus' anointing. Mm -hmm. Because all four Gospels have some anointing scene, Mm-hmm. Uh, most people believe that the the scene in John is the same as Mark and Matthew, while Luke's is entirely different. Mm-hmm. And so, by then, um, if John is indeed r- written much later, that story would have been very, very um, would have been very, very prominent, and people would have known already that it was on Tuesday. And so, John would use that story um, clearly. That's preparing, you know, Jesus's death. You know, when he's getting anointed, it's being prepared for burial. In fact, John is trying to communicate how Lazarus will die too mm. by using that scene that's so common um, in between. And, and you can read my book, it's in the appendix yeah. on, on why I believe that the synoptic gospels have it right that it's Tuesday night, not S- Saturday night.
1: Mm. Now, you went by right way for nope. all wondering here since we talk about Michael, some way he's referring to his Michael Lacona's book. While there are differences in the Gospels, and that is what we had the interview on two weeks ago on that working, And you know, he, he gave me a copy shortly after he got back from EPS and such, so I, I finished reading it last year because as soon as he gave it to me, it was that's going on my to do list next immediately. But you, know, you said about the passage, for instance, that the anointing scene you could take out the anointing scene and chances are you wouldn't even have known it was missing because it would still flow perfectly, right?
0: Yes, yes. That's what intercalation does. It's a, The the more the less technical term is sandwiching. Mm. So what it is is you, you, you have a, a story and in the middle of the story you just stick another story in there. Mm. But if you remove that story that's in the middle and you just combine the, the other halves you would have a, a free-flowing story. And I mm. think if you if you do that with um, the John chapter twelve passage, you will see that it flows. That's one of the many characteristics of what they call intercalation, mm. and I make that argument in the book that that's one reason why um, the Synoptics have the anointing on Tuesday, not not Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, what, what does Michael have? Do you, do you know what Michael argues? Because the typical, I know, I know he discusses it because I was at the ETS seminar where he was uh, up against other, other scholars. It was based on the firing lines. He handled it really well, and that was something that came up, was the, the anointing scene. You, do you know what Michael, fall, does he follow on Saturday or, or Tuesday?
1: I honestly don't remember I was reaching for his book, but I just can't look it up in time. But we, we did talk about it last time we're on, so anyone wondering if they can just go back and listen to that podcast or go and get Michael's book, I would recommend that even more. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're, you're talking about the, this kind of way that people vote and such like and that, they would sandwich topics and such, I, I'm thinking that I know many people who, I argue with a lot of skeptics, and some people are questioning the testimonium flavianum of Joseph Josephus because you know, it just doesn't fit in with what's before and after it and such and just seems so kind of patchwork and I'm going to say that's the way they wrote back then. They could do that kind of thing.
0: Well, it's it's important to to know how people write. I I used to be a journalist as well. I I used to do sports journalism and and my wife would you know, she would read some of my 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 scholarly articles and some of my non scholarly articles. And uh, she, she had a hard time following my, 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 my journal articles because they were written for a different kind of audience, right. with different techniques than writing for everyone, covering something like kind of more mundane. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, college football was a lot less academic than New Testament studies. And so yeah. I think sometimes we've got to remind ourselves that these, these people had a different point of view and, and different techniques, in different audiences than our our day, we have to be careful about anachronisms, where we try to you know put our time into their time or their time into our time, but just try to try to understand their time. And uh, yes, I think that that if you take into account these techniques, you will see that the anointing scene, um, I believe, is on a Tuesday, not not Saturday.
1: In, in all honesty, I'd probably have an easier time following the New Testament articles and the college football articles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, when when we watch the Super Bowl over here, generally, I read during whatever else is going on, then put my book down during the commercials because that's all I really care about. Oh well, Nick, come on, you
0: you're you're, you're living in Atlanta. The Falcons were were you know they were in the Super Bowl this year. Yeah, so you
1: know, i I I kept getting so amazed. This year, because I thought, all these people around me are suddenly interested in falconry. I had no idea falconry was so big in Atlanta.
0: Well, uh, when when you're in the Super Bowl, I think everyone becomes a fan. Except for you. You might be the only one in Atlanta that didn't really care.
1: Yeah, uh, I I, I was sitting here wondering why so many people were talking about this superb owl over and over. Why are we so obsessed with this owl? (laughs) What's the fascination (laughs) with this owl?
0: And you're probably the only one in Atlanta that has that question. I'm sure your father-in-law probably watched it, though.
1: I think they did some. I don't remember for sure. Mm -hmm. Let's move on, then, to day two of the ten days. What's going on in day two?
0: Well, day two is is mainly the the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, I talk about Bethany... On day one, well, really, you can talk about Bethany on all days up to Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, but day two is mainly the Sabbath and just the the importance of of rest. I think that's really in, in American culture. You know, we are just inundated with the need to be busy. It's like mm-hmm. if we're not busy, it's almost like there's a shame in not being busy. But mm-hmm. I think if you're too busy, it really disrupts. You know, what's most important is relationships, and I think as you study the Sabbath, in the end, the the essence of the Sabbath is there is a, a, a spiritual, physical rest, but the, the main thing is just connection, connection with God, and connection with people. And I think um, the great Rabbi Abraham, I think Herschel's his name, um, mm-hmm. said, you know, people ask, what, is your, what does he do on the Sabbath? And someone said, well, he just talks to people. That's really all he does is talk to people. Mm-hmm. And so I think the essence of the Sabbath, as we learn, is, is just connection, uh, connection with God and connection with others. You know, we're just not focused on what we're normally focused on, which is, you know, working and just the day-to-day things that burden us. It's just a day where we just cease, you know, we, we, we discipline to cease and just connect. And I think that on, on Saturday, day two, the day before the triumphant entry, entry he's he's resting, he's just enjoying time with his disciples he's enjoying time with mary martha lazarus Um, i'm sure there's people in the village that are coming to talk to him Um, but it's interesting how you know again right before the most important week of his life jesus didn't go to the the temple early he rested and and spent time with his friends and spent time with you know his disciples and spent time with god well spent time with him technically with the holy trinity spent time with god the father
1: Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who got to know me on Facebook and such have noticed that my rule of practice is that I'm happy to debate and discuss with people every single day of the week Mm -hmm. except Sunday Mm. Sundays I take a break from Facebook activity and such unless it's an absolute emergency I think for instance if someone is on there and they're inserting the misses I will jump on and I will let them have it Mm. Such, but and Matt, no, I I take a break. I don't do debates. Now, of course, if I'm out in public somewhere and someone says something and something has to happen then, yeah, I do it. But just try and just rest and relax. If I have a debate going on Saturday, I'll say I'll be back Monday. I'll be glad to discuss things Monday. But for now, I'm done. Because okay. I need some time to recharge because if all I did was debate every single day of the week, I would wear myself out.
0: No, oh, we all would. No matter how much you love your work, mm-hmm. um, you know, you still need that rest.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There are some temperaments. There, there are some like workaholic, you know, people who have that, that kind, of te- kind of tendency, and, and they themselves are the, are the most you know mm-hmm. vulnerable to, to the things that the Bible wants to protect us from. You know, burnout, hard, yeah. you know, dying young. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, you know, you just see that God really had our best interest in mind when he instituted the Sabbath. Yeah. So.
1: I mean, I'm happy to do reading and such on that day. But the real work of discussing with other people and such, no, no, I just need a break to recharge, especially since sometimes if you spend enough time debating with non-Christians on the internet, it can be very exhausting after a while. Well,
0: especially when people are being unreasonable,
1: yes. which I'm sure a lot of, a lot of your debates are online
0: debates are, like I don't make any kind of political comments online anymore. It's just kind of the most ridiculous waste of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, people it, are just you know, so polarized these days on certain opinions that you just you can't talk about it in person. You know, so it's like I can imagine some of your debates yes. are incredibly draining.
1: Yes. Now, if anyone's more interested in Sabbath, by the way. Go back to last year, I believe it was, I had John Coesler on the program. I wanting to say it was in November. I could be missing it, but I wanted to say November. And we talked about his book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest, and gave it a good apologetics for us, especially for those of us who are in that field. And, you know, one thing I'm thinking about, I'm remembering about it is, it's important for me to do that because, I tell people, it doesn't all depend on me. And I think worker hearts especially have this great mistake of mm-hmm. abandoning their family, for instance, and in going to work. And I've told people repeatedly, my own wife knows I've said, look, if something happens to me, there are many other people who can take up the charge of apologetics. If I'm sick for a day, it's not gonna be the whole world's gonna to turn to atheism and such. Mm-hmm. Okay. But despite all that there is only one person right now there And that's how that's the way it is, to a deftuous part, who can be a husband to my wife. And that is it. And I tell men in ministry, there is only one person who can be a husband to your wife, a father to your children. And I don't care how good you succeed in ministry, if you fail to take care of your family and be a husband and a father like you're supposed to be, I count you as a failure in ministry.
0: Well, that's I think, I think that's one reason why God instituted things like Sabbath, mm-hmm. is to make sure that we don't get overboard, that we can have, take time to reconnect
2: mm-hmm.
0: and reprioritize. Because as we connect with God and each other, and our bodies get recharged, um, we just have more strength mm-hmm. um, to to work, but also strength to connect. Because sometimes when people come back from work, they don't want to connect. Mm-hmm. They just want to sit there and, <laughs> and quote-unquote rest, mm-hmm. which really the real work begins when you come home not when you when you go into the office and so it's it's interesting how even from a secular perspective right now um ariana huffington from the Huff, huffington post is just becoming a sleep evangelist everywhere she's talking about how everyone needs to sleep because she herself didn't sleep and almost killed her self and and she started to sleep and just saw her life change and mm-hmm. so even from a secular point of view on um, my there's a business author named Travis Bradbury um, he's been writing a lot and almost everything he he says and he writes one of the things he'll write in there is sleep so it's it's interesting that even from a, a secular point of view um, there's discovering the need for rest is is like sacrifice the battle to win the war I think is was what what I'm getting um, and the Bible is clear that you know they don't you, you don't need to be always on the front lines, there's just times you need to retreat. And Jesus clearly models that in the last ten days by not resting once on the regular Sabbath, but I also believe he rested on, on Wednesday as well.
1: I think even the famed evangelist John Stark was I mean, was once asked one lesson you wish you'd learned earlier or something like that, you said, learn how much sleep I need.
0: Hmm. Yes. We need to we need to sleep. So I'm a I'm a coffee drinker.
1: I'm and, sorry. Uh,
0: yeah, I know. I think you're a tea drinker. but uh, yeah, Yes,
1: uh, it's my conviction that coffee was created by the devil to lead us away from tea. So.
0: <laughs> but uh, one thing that I've learned is try to not drink any kind of caffeine afternoon. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so just to give the body time to process that caffeine so I can sleep. So I'm trying to have that discipline because I'm the kind of person that in the, in the afternoon when you have that slump. Um, for me, I have a slump after, after lunch. In the past, I used to try to counteract that with, with a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and that would just leave my evenings making it hard to sleep. And now I try to stop at, at noon, and uh, whether it's tea, coffee, sodas, um, I try not to drink sodas. Those aren't good for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, I only drink sodas pretty much when we go out to a restaurant and such, but that we, we, we could spend all day talking about this kind of thing. Let's go on to day three. What's going okay. on?
0: Well, day three is the beginning of Holy Week, and that's Palm Sunday, as most people know it. Um, and so that's the day that Jesus, you know, walks, you know, he doesn't walk and he rides in on a donkey. And it's very significant because when Solomon took the reins from King David, one thing he did was ride on David's colt.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the palm branches aren't native to, to Jerusalem, so it, it's, it's likely that these people, maybe as far as Jericho, could have anticipated this day and brought palm branches to lay on the, on the ground um, as Jesus is coming in. So him coming in on a, on a, on a donkey is, is on a colt or a mule is very significant because he is telling the people that I am indeed the Messiah, which a Jewish person would see the, the Messiah as the next King David mm. and they were looking for that military ruler because at that time the Roman government had oppressed them with heavy taxes. Um, even imposing their own religions. Mm-hmm. And so there's great oppression uh, under the Romans by, by the nation of Israel. So someone like a, a David coming would give them great hope because it would say, oh, we're going to be free from, from these Romans. You know, our king will lead us into battle. Um, but we know from scriptures that Jesus' first coming was as a suffering servant, not as a Davidic king. It's his second coming that he will truly um, fulfill the Davidic mm-hmm. kingship but him riding on the donkey is, is telling people that he, I am indeed the king. Um, but I'm not bringing a, an army. I'm bringing love and sacrifice. And so it's uh, a very significant day of Jesus coming into to Jerusalem on Sunday. Now, on
1: if if uh, someone's wondering a lot about Jesus being on the side, I'm going to give you all a little preview. Be here in two weeks. We're having Michael Brown come on. He's going to be talking about Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. You know, Michael, as, Chung, as you and I are uh, Gentiles here, I think it's sadly our tendency to kind of skip over that. Whether we read it in the Gospels or in Paul, when we hear about Jesus Christ and such, thing, think, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little title. He's, again, yeah, he's a Messiah. We don't really think about what that means.
0: Well, people don't realize that Christ is actually not his surname. Right. Christ simply means chosen one. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus would not sign his initials JC. Mm-hmm. Um, so Christ was just a title given to him as, as the Messiah. And so, yes, that's why Sunday day three is so significant because everyone's so excited that yes, this Messiah that they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ's time, so they've been really waiting, um, and they've had those those dark periods too in their history. So Jesus coming to some people would just be probably the greatest experience of their life.
1: And I was at a Michael Brown debate first day. I made arrangements for him to be on the show way before then, mm-hmm. but he did say. Now, how, and it was a debate on if Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and he did say that, uh, there are some people who actually think that Jesus was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. And I have <laughs> encountered that kind of thinking before. And even when to say, no, the Messiah really means that Jesus is the promised deliverer of Israel, their King, the one of whom all the prophets spoke and wrote. And I, I often think Jesus wasn't upfront about this so much, mainly because if he went around proclaiming openly, hey, I'm the Messiah, everyone would be gathering to him and having weapons, by and say, hey, all right, let's go, let's march on Rome and let's take over.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's that's a lot, a lot of what people wanted to do. That's a lot of reason why um, the Jews today... Mm-hmm. I was just on a radio show this weekend, actually, and there was a rabbi. He was a real rabbi. He wasn't Messianic Jewish. He was, yeah. you know, he, they, they don't acknowledge the Messianic Judaism as, as Jewish. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of reason why they don't acknowledge Jesus. was he wasn't King David,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. But they should know that, I mean, Isaiah 55 is there, you know, the suffering servant. You know, that's who Jesus was when he first came. I think you mean 53. I'm sorry yeah sorry fifty three I'm thinking about another one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, isaiah fifty three you know is there, is is there, and they should have recognized that that's what who Jesus was mm-hmm.
1: Now let's move on then to day four. Here. what's going on on day four of passion?
0: well, day four is is significant because that's the day that Jesus cleanses the temple.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so he comes in on Sunday and he comes into the temple, clearly, he probably sees what's going on, and already um, he he, he has in mind to come back. And uh, that's the day he curses the fig tree. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So that's the day that um, most likely he probably got up really, really early, because clearly the, the writer of the gospel says that he was hungry. And so he clearly got up really early. He didn't take time to eat breakfast. Um, and he knew that there wasn't the season for figs, but he still cursed the tree anyway. Mm. So there's an aspect where, you know, he misses breakfast and he wants to get there quick to, you know, to put things in order. It's kind of like how you say, how when when your wife is being attacked on on social media, if I heard it right, how you won't stand for it. Well, here God's temple you know, his father's temple, his house is being desecrated by commerce and he wants to come and make it right. So just as you defend your wife, you know, Jesus is defending God the Father in his father's house and cleanse he's gonna cleanse the temple that day.
1: Yeah, I I think most of my friends on Facebook know the rule that if anyone goes after Allie like that, I mean disagreeing is fine, but if you dare insert her I think they have a rule of sit back get out some popcorn enjoy the show because the claws are going to come out and it's going to turn ugly very quickly here mm. um, well, um, every every husband needs to be that for their wife the, yeah. their
0: defender and protector
1: um, you uh, you talked quite a bit about the fig tree in one of your appendixes because in Mark Strauss's book for instance Jesus behaving badly where he looks at claims that Jesus isn't the good and kind person that we always think of him as, he uses a cursing of a fig tree as an example. I mean, like you have this poor innocent little fig tree, it's not even the season for figs, and Jesus just curses it, and it dies, just rivers right up. I mean, what's the point in that? Well,
0: it's a very tough passage, because it really is out of characteristic with how we think of Jesus. I mean, even the demons, if you think about it, they were just cast into the pigs. I mean, they, they just begged Jesus not to, to cast them into the abyss, Mm. Uh, but he cast them into the pigs. And so you would even think the demons have a better treatment. But uh, as I was doing some research, um, you know, you see that there's this, there's two holidays that the Jews celebrate. One is Tisha Mm B'Av. Um, it's a celebration of temple destruction. Actually, it's, it's not really a celebration. It's a, it's a really a day of fasting and mourning. It's a remembrance. Um, it's just a memory of, of of when the temple was destru- destroyed and and the the common passages read, read is from jeremiah eight verse thirteen through jeremiah nine twenty four um depending on you know which what version of the bible you're using and it's interesting eight thirteen talks about um withering of a fig tree and uh of this passage that's the common passage that's that's referred to is um, Jeremiah 8.13 in regards to to this passage. Well, that whole passage is read on Tisha V'Av, which celebrates temple destruction. And if you read a a lot of the scholarly literature on the cursing of the fig tree, a lot of them will associate that with the eventual destruction of the temple that happens in AD 70, Mm -hmm. and eventually the the, the Roman government just sacking the nation of Mm -hmm. Israel. But another holiday that's close by is called the 15th of Av. And that's actually much more positive Holiday. Those, those are often um, thought of in conjunction. And the 15th of Av has a significant agricultural aspect. In fact, it's, it's sometimes referred to as a holiday of trees,
2: mm.
0: where trees are symbolic or trees are a significant part of the 15th of Av. And so as I was studying those two, I thought, oh, well, I think Jesus is probably preparing the disciples for probably the worst thing that can destroy their faith, which would be eventually Rome coming and just totally ransacking the nation this would probably lose more hope for them than anything they would experience. And and and, and thinking that Jesus is preparing them by showing them that, hey,
2: mm-hmm.
0: they would know that the 15th of Av has associated with trees. Um, and it's a hopeful holiday that kind of counterbalances the Tisha B'Av, celebrated before. Um, and when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's like, wow, a tree's being cursed. You know, mm-hmm. Hopefully they would put two and two together and remind, and, and know that Someday, Rome will, will sack Israel, which clearly Jesus talks about in the Gospels, and they will, will get through it. Mm-hmm. You know, this devastating thing will not stop Christianity spread, but they'll remember that, hey, Jesus, and some of them actually will be, most of these disciples, probably only John really will be alive in AD 70. But these men will, will, will disciple other people, and they will teach You know that, yes, indeed, the nation will be sacked by the Roman government. And not to lose hope,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but to pre- press on with the gospel message that the, the coming kingdom will come. And, and you see that really prevalent in the New Testament about the second coming of Jesus Christ being the anchor of hope in the Christian walk, not not the this world, but the world to come.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also that we can still say there's a lot of symbolism for Israel as well, in addition, because Israel should have been having a lot of fruit, they certainly should have looked like it, and they didn't. So, both of these been going on in the minds of the disciples?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look at history, you know, history, we we go from hell to, you know, then we slip, and eventually we just need some kind of, you know, cleansing. It usually comes through suffering. Mm -hmm. That's true of my life. Um, and I studied the the Bible, you see that in the nation of Israel, how they'll have a period of a great leader will lead them back to Jesus, or I'm sorry, a great leader will lead them back to God, and obedience to the law, and then gradually they'll slip, and eventually they'll slip into, you know, sin, and being affected by those nations around them, and you just see that in in church history, and I just see that in my own life, how, you know, if I, if I'm too happy too long, I can start relying on myself and try to maintain this happiness versus you know being courageous you know courage and comfort don't really can't coexist mm-hmm. so that means faith and comfort really can't coexist and so sometimes i i myself need that personal cleansing mm-hmm. um to get back with the lord
1: mm-hmm. yeah and is this also the same day you know, i think sometimes it can be a little bit clear do you think this is the same day that jesus did cleanse the temple out I believe Monday, yes. This is
0: the day that he's, he's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's somewhat debated too, but yes, I believe it's Monday that he's cleansing the temple because he just gets there on Sunday and he sees it and he just can't wait. And I think the fact that he's hungry, I mean, it's clearly that the, the Bible offers, authors, authors, you know, allude or, or, or make mention that he's hungry. That shows me that he's not waiting, he's not wasting time, he's getting there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we talk about the cleansing of a temple, I, I often think if any of us has any concept of just Jesus as gentle, meek, and mild, cleansing the temple should really cause us to reassess our view.
0: Well, cursing a tree, then cleansing a temple—it's uh, yeah. Jesus clearly had appropriately expressed his anger,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. what makes him angry is when God is desecrated. <clears throat>
1: uh, I've got one of the images on Facebook on my memes that I, I can pull up sometimes and one of them says that uh, if anyone asks you what would Jesus do, remind me that turning over the table as my temple isn't out of the question
2: <laughs> and
1: then the other one saying that if Jesus did this kind of thing today, a lot of people would say he wasn't acting like Jesus
0: well I, like again, we have him as a sweet, kind man, which he is right but he's also, he's angered by, by, by being, seeing his father's house desecrated. And I think we all need to also have that righteous anger when we see God's name being taken in vain or we just see his holy things um, being, being desecrated. We also have to have that righteous anger as Jesus did.
1: <clears throat> now, what's your take on the cleansing of a temple in John as compared to the synoptics?
0: Well, that's a great question. And again, scholars are divided there. Most scholars will think that that's one and the same, that John is just using that temple cleansing scene um, to communicate a different theological stance. I believe it is actually two temple cleanses. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it really, this would have happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is about three to three and a half years. Um, that's a long time um, in some sense. And that's certainly... You know, what what probably would have happened was maybe the first year, you know, people were sneaking back in to try to make some money, or maybe they were doing a quote-unquote black market maybe for fear Mm -hmm. of Jesus coming in. Um, But I think that, yeah, it was Jesus, it was the beginning of Jesus' ministry that, you know, already the temple was already, um, you know, being used for commerce, and Jesus kind of got a head start. And Mm -hmm. he saw that three to three and a half years later, um, it came back to where he was and where it was, you know, at the beginning of his ministry, and he cleaned it again.
1: You know, I, I would be inclined to agree with you. I think uh, Randy Richards even wrote an interesting article several years ago on he made an honor shame basis mm. for the two cleansings at right, the first time Jesus didn't come out looking the best at actually, but he got the better hand the second time. And that's probably one of the main things that led the Jewish leaders say, okay, we got to do something about this guy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they've been, they've been after him for pretty much this whole ministry. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like reaching a pinnacle because it's Holy week. He's already come in on the donkey. People are just flocking. Like they've always been flocking to Jesus throughout his ministry. Um, but it's basically come to the point where they either got to acknowledge this guy's the Messiah, or they got to get rid of him.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's not just they have to get rid of him, they have to utterly humiliate him so that no one will ever think he's a Messiah.
0: Well, yes, and, uh, you know, the cross is usually just reserved for, you know, slaves that try to escape, or people who try to lead a revolution. That Mm -hmm. was what the... You know, what the Jewish leaders tried to accuse him of
2: mm-hmm.
0: is he's trying to lead a revolution against Rome, which we know that Pilate himself knew 100% that that was not what Jesus was doing and tried very hard to, mm-hmm. to free Jesus. But in the end, he just didn't have, you know, he himself, Pilate himself, did not have the, the courage to to do the right thing. Um, of course, we know spiritually that God used that um, to do the greatest thing, which is mm-hmm. to redeem, redeem us from sin. Mm-hmm.
1: My wife and I watched the Bible miniseries together, Mm -hmm. and one of our favorite lines came, I mean, I I know it's not found in the Bible, but it was just a cute little way of playing on it, with Pilate talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, when Stern just says, He'll be forgotten within a week.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly did not happen.
1: So, (laughs) let's move on to day five. What happened in day five?
0: A lot happened. Like, again, um, we, we talked about the anointing. That's probably one of my favorite days, mm-hmm. is the anointing of Jesus. And um, one of the reasons why is just the the amount of perfume that um, Mary uses. It's about a pint, which isn't much by our standards. It's basically, if you were in, in grade school here in America, it'd basically be about a milk carton that you would get, Um at school, um, but a pint of perfume, regardless of how much is quite a bit. And this perfume, um, was worth quite a bit was this, this perfume was worth a year's wages, which I estimate is about in in today's term around $50,000. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's significant. I mean, this is no, you know, just, you know, normal perfume. This is, this is the stuff. And she anoints Jesus on Tuesday um, with it, and lo and behold the person who who is most upset is is Judas mm-hmm. and he will sell Jesus for thirty pieces of silver, which is actually it's, it's not it's nothing small it's about one third of a year's wages too it's 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 a lot, but for about one third the value Jesus um, betrays his savior yet Mary. Um, with a much more precious commodity, um, gives it up for the Lord. I just thought it was a wonderful contrast between, you know, Mary, who has a great devotion to God, mm-hmm. to Jesus, um, willing to give up this great, great perfume, just give it all, versus Judas, who's going to betray him for only one, his master he'd lived with for almost three and a half years, for just one-third the value. Um, it's just amazing. It's just a reminder that quantity isn't always a determinant. A faith it's actually believing um and mary didn't have the time that judas did mm-hmm. but she clearly had a greater faith than judas had
1: mm-hmm. well, i'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the deeper waters podcast my guest this week is dr michael chung we're talking about his book jesus the last king of israel well it's just but, called the last king of israel okay. not not yeah just the okay. last king of
0: israel lessons from jesus final 10 days
1: okay well if you're here next week though uh, Y'all know by now that every April, since Allie and I both have Asperger's, I do something for Autism Awareness Month. Where next week, we're having my friend Stephen Bedard come back, he's the one who wrote the book How to Make Your Church Autism Friendly. And he's a pastor, and we're having him come back because since he was on, he himself has been diagnosed as being on the spectrum. So we're going to be asking, what's it like being an autistic pastor, and what can we learn from this? So, come back next week and where we we'll have come talk about Asperger's for Autism Awareness Month for Stephen Bedard and what we can learn from it. Not just how to make your church autism friendly, but what do you do if your pastor is on the spectrum? Now, for now, let's get back to Dr. Chung and his book The Last King of Israel. Now, let's uh, kind of play a little bit of a devil's advocate here and such. Some but I would say, wait, you know, Judas does have a point. I mean, think about all that that could have been cared for if such a donation had been made to the poor. I mean, I know Judas stole some of the money that was in the money bag, so he had his own self-interest. But did he not also have a point?
0: Well, that's a great point. I think it's really related to what we talked about earlier mm-hmm. about evangelism versus recreation, you know, how you were using the example of you hanging out with your wife, Allie, mm-hmm. versus going out and sharing the gospel. And here again, Jesus is giving us a very balanced um, view of, of life. Uh, because in the end, he's responding to Mary's faith, that Mary understands. You, you, you read the Synoptic Gospels, and you can see the disciples didn't always understand uh, the purpose of why Jesus had to die. Mary clearly got it, and and she knew that he was going to go and be the sacrificial lamb for our sins, and was preparing um her king her friend um for his completing his mission and judas clearly did not understand so the pragmatic thing would be to sell that and maybe even use a lesser perfume um but again we must worship god in spirit and in truth and balancing those two can be really difficult i don't know if you've been to the holy land
1: um, no, nope, but I'd, I'd love to sometime. But but I've
0: heard that even in the Holy Land on Sabbath, that escalators don't run. Mm-hmm. And so people are just so um, focused on the truth that sometimes the spirit of things, you know if you're someone who's old and really needs those escalators, you better not be out on the Sabbath. So
1: they actually have Sabbath elevators there that you can use.
0: Well, that's that's good. That's 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 one solution. Uh, but the point is that you see that through through Jesus' acceptance of Mary's devotion, how you know the faith and, and love of Mary, the worship of the Mary, is far supersedes, you know, the practic- pragmatic um, criticism of Judas. And Judas himself is probably thinking, well, that's less money that I, I could take. That's probably his main motivation. But uh, remember, in, in the Old Testament how Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. And sometimes we emphasize so much on doing that we forget the the worship aspect that Mary understood by sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, one of the first scenes of Bethany, while Martha's screaming at Mary, come on, on, help me, help me, help me. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And and Jesus says, you know, Mary has done the right thing. Um, She's sat at my feet and she hasn't wasted her time, or she hasn't focused too much on getting things done as just giving me honor. And the very last mention of Martha in the Bible actually is on day two, mm. um, where Martha herself is serving the meal, and there's no indication that she's stressed out. And I think by then she understands that, yes, um, it's more important to be than to do. And sometimes I think we, we, we confuse the two. We're so focused on what we do, God just wants the, the condition of our heart that you know, doing is important. Well, let's not let's not say it's not important, but in, in its proper context. And here in the anointing scene, uh, when you contrast, you know, Judas and Mary, you begin to see the priorities of God. And it's not always in the practical, pragmatic, you know, selling to the poor, uh, but oftentimes it's just Lord, give. You know, God wants us to give Him our best, mm. our attention, and our focus. Mm.
1: Okay, so let's move on to day six. What's going on on day six? Well, that's
0: Wednesday. And again, um, people, um, scholars are divided on what actually happens. Um, but I'm going to argue that uh, day, day six, is a Wednesday, it's, it's a Wednesday, and it's a, a day of rest. Um, and so I'm just going to argue that, you know, in the last 10 days, Jesus rested twice. Hm. And that's a, that's a good example for us to remind ourselves that, you know, it's not always about us. And I guess another thing that, that busyness definitely fights is prayer. And I think when you take time to slow down and connect with God, your prayer life will increase. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther used to pray three hours a day. And it seemed like when these saints got more busy, they prayed more. And I have found that when I take more time to pray and connect with God, I don't have less time. I feel I have more time, that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, I have to say this is, and I'm probably not the only guy who would say this, this is an area of struggle for me. And I think it could be for a lot of guys, and I think for two reasons. First off, we're not very relationally oriented, and second, we are much more action-oriented, and mm-hmm. prayer doesn't seem like action. All times. The way I do things is, I do have a mentor, and I email him every night after praying, and then I just talk a little bit about how my day has gone and such. Uh, that That's the steps I have to because prayer just doesn't come naturally.
0: mm well again I think it, it it's it's discipline relationships end up being becoming a discipline I mean the Jews have a really good system of having three prayer times a day mm-hmm. um, it's 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 good um, you know you know other cultures have uh, prayer times already written in and there's there's goods and bads about it sometimes you just do it because of it's it's what you do not you want to do it and I think um, you know a life of Busyness sometimes really impinges on a relationship with God because we focus so much on doing that we forget that God really wants us to connect with him and drink deeply of him and meditate on him. And sometimes it's best done um, in solitude or, or silence or, or in the company of other people, uh, fellowshipping. Um, but sometimes just doing work, even if it's God's work, even if it's the work of evangelism. Sometimes that can get in the way of, of what God really wants, which is our worship, our love, you know, our adoration, mm-hmm. our time, basically.
1: Yeah, I think also that sometimes you can say, yeah, we don't want to do it, but sometimes if we're going to be obedient servants, we have to do things that we really don't want to do at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yes. I give you an example of that there are many times that I've done my work on the computer and such for a day. I'm done. I want to sit back on the couch, maybe kick my shoes off, read my book. And then I would be, can you please go to the store and pick something up for me? Now, my wife can't drive due to a, a brain condition and such. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's going to do any driving around here, it's going to have to be me. Mm. Many of those times, I assure you, I do not want to go to a store and pick something up. But mm. nine times out of ten, I go to a store and pick something up. Oh, wow.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's a, as a good servant you are. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I tried, but I, mean, I I think the point is that if we're going to be following the Christian life many times, we have to do those things we don't want to do. And it especially comes in where tempted with sin, because if I kept doing all the things I wanted to do over and over, I would be screwing up so much throughout the day I would say, I want to do that but I shouldn't and I can't and I'm not. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's still just always dying to yourself and not just doing something just because you either feel like it or you don't feel like doing it.
0: Well, that's that's really the essence of a good marriage, isn't it? Is- mm-hmm. Not how much happiness we can get from our mate, but how much we can serve mm-hmm. uh, one another as worship to, to God, really, to, as, as, as the purveyors of the covenant,
2: yeah.
0: uh, as an example of what marriage is really like. It's uh, not about getting, it's about giving.
1: Yeah, I, I like what Gary Thomas has said in his sacred marriage, said, what if marriage wasn't designed to make you happy, but to make you holy? Oh, it's,
0: that's what it's designed for. Mm-hmm. But many great saints have said that holiness is happiness. So, mm. yeah,
1: let's move on then to day seven. Since there wasn't a lot going on in day six, what's going on in day seven?
0: Well, a lot is going on, obviously. Um, one thing that I really um, focused on was how the Last Supper was not the Last Supper,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and how Jesus himself, though he is, um, and, it, and it's debated debated about the nature of the meal, um, most, most scholars who are non-Jewish will say that when Jesus is, um, you know, he's actually having a typical Passover meal, Seder and all, and he's using the four cups. Um, but a lot of Jewish scholars, especially those who aren't Messianic Jewish will say that, no, the, the actual Passover meal wasn't instituted until 80, 80, um, 10 years after destruction. And they have a point. There's really a, after the AD 70 there's really not much in that area era time of jesus that will indicate you know exactly the nature of the meal um and so but jesus is having the last supper as as we often um discuss it and i what what stood out to me was when he was talking about how he will he'll have a meal again with them and this last supper this will indeed be the Last Supper, and I think uh, what Jesus is referring to is the is the Marriage Supper of the Lamb
2: mm-hmm. in
0: Revelation 19. And so I, I would like to see people change this from not the Last Supper at all. It, it certainly is not. The Last Supper is yet to happen, and it won't happen until the Second Coming. So clearly Jesus says that he will eat again with them. And so I, I would like to see people, I'd like, I like to see the Church really focus on the real Last Supper, which is the one when Jesus comes back, um, that one I can't wait to experience.
1: Mm-hmm. But what would you say about the idea that, for instance, Jesus has a meal with some disciples in Luke 24, where he even goes and he breaks bread with them? I mean, how does that fit in?
0: Well, bread, oft- oftentimes, you know, that's regardless of when the actual Passover meal was instituted, as far as from a Jewish perspective, um, bread is just, you know, it's a staple. So they'll, they'll have that at a meal, um, regardless of, of the nature. Obviously, was, was it going to be leavened or unleavened? Um, some Jewish scholars will say the, the Greek word artos actually is more of a leavened bread, not an unleavened bread. But we all know that, you know, Passover is celebrated with unleavened bread a well, reminder that they had to get out of Egypt quick and they didn't have time for that yeast to rise so they had to get out of there and have enough food um, yeah
1: what do you think we can really get out of the Last Supper
0: well again for me and and this, this comes with the Eucharist and, and partaking of, of communion is I'm often thinking about Jesus um Jesus is coming. Um, I've done some work in the Anglican tradition, and I have administered the elements um, in the Anglican, in, in America we call it the Episcopal tradition. And when I administer the cup, I will often say Christ has come and will come again. And, and then I give them the cup. And I just feel that the Last Supper really is, is, is just an emphasis on Christ's return. How Jesus came one time, he's coming back again. I, I just feel that we've lost that as a church. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. We we focus often on on the death of Christ, how he gave his body and blood for our, our sins, which is, you know, the, one of the main purposes. But I think that one thing we've lost is the emphasis on Christ will come back again and will dine again, that when we're eating here, we're not only eating in remembrance of what happened before, but we're anticipating what's happening, going to happen again that will eat with Christ um, when he returns. And that that I look forward to.
1: I find that interesting, because I would say in many cases we've tended to overemphasize, if that's possible, the return of Christ, mainly because of our, our whole caught-up fascination of end times mania and such, so much so that we've forgotten about the resurrection of Jesus many times.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I think that's yes. Obvious, obviously, communion. We're 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 focusing on the death, mm-hmm. um, but as we focus on the second coming, obviously you can't you can't get there until until you, you, Jesus resurrects from the dead, and that's mm-hmm. part of anticipation of the second coming. Mm-hmm. is That in Jesus is alive, um, mm-hmm. and that we have this hope that He wasn't this guy that said, "I'm this great revolutionary," and died. That He's He's alive. He left. Um, he. he he left this earth from Bethany,
2: mm-hmm. and he'll come back again.
0: And so, I don't see how you can divorce, for lack of a better term, the resurrection from the second coming. They're really, you, you really, one really deepens the other.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I also noticed that you didn't really say anything about. The, the purpose of a Eucharist per se and such, because we have so many debates in the church. Like, is this symbolic? Is this a memorial? Is this liberal? Right. Over and over. And I've looked at that not too much, but I've just said, you know what? It's really not big dear to me. Jesus said, just do it. And so mm. I'm going to get together, is, I'm going to go and I'm going to have this event at my church. And I'm going to give thanks for the coming of Jesus and celebrate his future return. Mm, amen. Is that your stance? I mean, is that why you didn't take any one particular side or anything?
0: Well, I, I just try to stay very close to the biblical text and not try to get too much into my tradition or other traditions' views. Mm. I mean, you know that they people have died actually over disagreements on the Eucharist, and that's when Martin Luther and Albrecht Zwingli were discussing the Reformation, they almost came to a, a, a unity until they came to the Eucharist. And you know that Lutherans mm-hmm. believe that the, the presence of Christ is in the elements, that elements don't become the body and blood of Christ like the Catholics believe, but that Jesus' sp- spiritual presence fills the elements. And Zwingli said that, no, this is just symbolic this is just representative of of what we need to do and that's that's what they they could not agree on that and
2: mm-hmm.
0: in the end they agreed on everything uh i think as many as 15 points mm-hmm. that one area of disagreement prevented luther and zwingli from uniting together um, in the reformation
2: mm-hmm.
0: And so um yeah i try to stick very close to the biblical text just say this is what jesus said this is what i say um and this i think i think that, i think we we get uh yeah, I think the, the further further you, you lean on tradition and, and interpretation, um, the more and more apt to disagree. Because we all see through different lenses. Some people are more right-brained, other people more left-brained. And I just try to stay very close to the biblical text.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, when we come into day eight, where this is Friday, and not very much of significance happened this day. Did it?
0: <laughs> well... Yeah, facetiously yes, but uh, yeah, day eight probably has more more writing than anything in my book, and uh, I don't think I even scratched the surface on day eight. I tried to focus on on days that there wasn't as much written on. I would think that one thing that stood out to me on on day eight, Good Friday, was Nicodemus, um, the Pharisee. Mm. The scholars are debating on on whether Nicodemus truly was a believer. And if he was a believer, they're, they're debating on how how strong of a believer he was. I believe day eight shows that Nicodemus came from, at first, you know, in, in chapter three of John, he's a seeker. Mm-hmm. Chapter seven, you see Nicodemus come again, and I think you can argue that he's what we call a secret disciple. Um, and I think that in chapter 19, Nicodemus' his final appearance in scripture, he really, is a servant.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I make that argument because it's Passover and he touches the dead body of Jesus. Um, he brings about 75 to 100 pounds of perfume, number one, and spices to prepare the body. The fact that he would touch a dead body would render him unclean. And the Bible actually talks about that, that if you're unclean during Passover, you, you have to wait a month to celebrate it. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that Nicodemus would take this, you know, being a member of the Sanhedrin, being a Pharisee, to do this during Passover, which shows me that this, this man came from secret disciple to servant, that he knew the laws of Judaism, but he also knew that this indeed was not just the Messiah, but this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And at great risk, you know, touching the dead body, preparing him with a royal burial, which would be a slap in the face to all his colleagues who, who rejoiced over this day, um, showed me that he crossed over. Um, the servant, or slave.
1: Yeah. I Before I really say anything about Nicodemus, I'm going to uh, take a normal break. This time, the show reminded when well, everything we do here, here is listener-supported, and we really depend on the support of people like you out there. So, if you're interested in my support, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and... There you're going. I'm going to, back. Go and look right now. Make sure I'm getting everything right too. There's a link on the side. It says help support for work of deeper waters Christian Ministries. And if you click in there, there's you'll find a you'll be sent to Risen Jesus Ministries. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And they will uh, take your donation. And it's tax-deductible, and you get in touch then with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get that donation. It will be tax-deductible. And if you want to support us in that way, you can buy some of the ebooks I've got on Amazon. When I wrote myself, The Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian... And the others I've uh, co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters, Debate with an Atheist. And finally, guys, you can uh, buy jewelry to support us. Now, you ladies can buy jewelry for yourselves, that's fine too, but... I'm thinking a lot of you, if you have a guy in your life, you'd really like him if that guy would buy the jewelry for you. I'm not sure how many of you might have caught on to this, but... Ladies tend to like jewelry. I mean, Have you noticed this, Dr. Chung? I know. Yep. Yeah. So, and you, you go here. The access code is LOVE. Get in touch with me if you need help. My friend, Lena Clester, hinders it. And you make a purchase. And 25% of whatever you buy there, it goes to support the Waters. So, uh, you can go ahead and you can buy that special lady in your life a gift of jewelry so that you can... Uh, You can make up for that big screw-up that you did recently. Or you can make up for that screw-up that you know you're going to make in the future. (laughs) Um, And please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I'd really love to see them. So, um, Dr. Chung, do you have uh, any organization you'd like to people donate to?
0: Well, I uh, personally have a huge heart for orphans. Mm. Um, that's kind of one of my, you know, that's probably one of the, the, uh, the ministries I want to champion is to see orphans adopted. And so I think one of the great ministries I'm, I'm working with is Show Hope, um, started by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And very biblical, you know, I think the Bible talks very, very, very specifically about the need to care for orphans. Um, not just in James 1.27, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I, I love to see people get involved um, in mm-hmm. adoption, either through Shohopa or, or any organization that supports adoption or through their local church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just think the adoption is just, the, you, 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 know, you're, 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 you see the gospel lived out, and you experience the, the gospel from the other side. We're so used to experiencing God's grace. But here, a family um, welcomes a child into their home, takes them out of an institution, into their family. There's just nothing greater um, to illustrate the, the goodness of the gospel than adoption.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it, may I ask, out of curiosity, if there's any personal connection to adoption for you? Well, both my children are adopted, so yeah, they're they're
0: just the. The joy of my life. I, and we're actually in the process of adopting a third child. So mm-hmm. this is probably the, the end. I wish I was younger. But I'm, I'm younger than your father-in-law, but uh, still, I'm uh, getting up there in age. But, uh, yeah, both my kids are adopted, and I just love them to, to pieces. I couldn't have asked for two better kids.
1: And that organization for our interested is showhope.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah when you talking about Nicodemus I think Nicodemus sometimes sadly gets a bum rap Yes, a lot of of people look for instance and say well geez Nicodemus was ashamed and such he didn't want to go public so he came alone at night and I say no actually that really shows how serious Nicodemus was because if you ask the question publicly it was more often a way of challenging the teacher and such, trying to see if he really knew what he was talking about. But if he wanted to find out if he was a real deal, you contacted him privately.
0: Well, I, and, and remember, Jesus and Nicodemus, they're pretty busy during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, in that culture, there's just, you really can't do much when it's dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have electricity. Or torches and candles will <clears throat> be their main way of seeing at night. Mm-hmm. And so they are they're busy during the day. And at night, you know, is really... They can work, obviously, but they they can't get what they can do during the day. Um, Mm -hmm. That's probably another reason. Plus, if you look at John, there's a a strong contrast between light and darkness as well. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so one can make the argument that that Nicodemus coming in the cover of darkness um, is that contrast between darkness and light. How he will enter in from darkness into light. How really the gospel writers... Properly portray Pharisees and Sadducees, and um, you know, and scribes and, and these people, these Jewish religious leaders. I, I call them um, negatively, but here John is talking about someone who's in the Sanhedrin. So he'd be at the Supreme Court. He'd be the highest. Um, someone coming to Jesus, um, and I believe that Chapter 19 shows that he did cross over and not only became a believer but became a follower that was willing to risk his life. And that's really the end, the ultimate test, is are you willing to risk it mm. um, for the sake of the glory of God?
1: And this, of course, like we said, it's Good Friday, if I were talking about it. And I really think people often lose sight of just how horrendous the crucifixion was. And we mm. say, like, well, I saw the Passion movie. Well, good for you, but... If they really showed what it was like, I think in a passion movie, it you when yeah, I I just can't even think of a word to describe it, you know, because it would have been one of the most hideous sights you would have ever seen. It's kind of like what you'd think you'd have nightmares about.
0: Oh well, I I think a lot of us have nightmares just watching you know those movies, even even not. I mean, obviously the passion is one of the most vivid portrayals of the crucifixion, but there's been lots of movies about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all of them will have a crucifixion scene. And mm-hmm. even, even the most benign ones are hard to watch.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is a day where we can we can say that, let's see the, the bad guys in this case, the demons, as well as the ruling elite of Israel said, this is it game over. We have won.
0: Well, that's really the, the story of the Bible in one sense is that what, what appears to be logical from a human perspective is the most illogical thing that can happen. And God uses these things for the greatest glory. It seems like the more illogical, um, here the Son of God dying on a cross, you know, was the master plan of redeeming the whole world um, to himself. It's just really just an amazing story of, of love and grace
1: you know, I, I, I often count people who would say, well, you know, a lot of Christians became Christians early on because this story was just so appealing to them. And I hear them think, you have no idea how crucifixion was seen in that culture. The idea of someone crucified was not at all appealing. Talking hmm. about someone being crucified and saying they're a Messiah, it'd be kind of like a thing. Here's someone who's a convicted sex offender guilty of pedophilia. We're going to put him at, in the, the running for president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention.
0: Oh. oh, yeah. Well, I don't even want to begin to go there.
1: It, it is that same kind of stigma, though, isn't it?
0: Well, there's again, crucifixion was largely reserved for insurrectionists
2: mm-hmm.
0: or those slaves who were trying to lead a revolt. Right. Um, and so obviously Jesus was accused of insurrection that was how he got crucified. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was obviously an incredibly shaming shaming way to die because you were you often didn't die uh, right away like Jesus's death just after, you know, just on the cross for 6 hours is really atypical. Usually you were alive for for days.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so not only were you experiencing the physical agony but just the emotional agony of people just you know hurling insults at you and
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know it's just a horrible way to die and even the bible talks about cursed are those who hang on a tree so jesus is enduring not just a, a physical you know a physical b- suffering but also just a spiritual cursing taking that curse of sin um on his on his shoulders not ours
1: yeah and, of course, you know how he only spent six hours on there, and like, well, people didn't normally die after that. Only, I mean, yeah, that's true. That was out normal, but you also have to remember Jesus had gone the whole night without sleep, being put on trial, illegally, might I add, and being flogged, which a lot of people died just during the flogging. He had a cat of terrorist, which was a whip, which had nine different endings designed to pretty much rip the skin... Off of mm-hmm. someone uh, it kind of leaves you surprised he actually lasted six hours
0: well I, I make the argument in the book that Pilate himself um, was hoping that Jesus would die mm-hmm. um, as a, as a form of freeing him he didn't I, I really believe that as I was studying the the last ten days, I looked at Pilate and I thought, wow, he's really trying to and when he tells Jesus to go into the praetorium, knowing that his soldiers will be there and they're going to beat him up, there's a part of me that's thinking maybe he's trying to spare Jesus. This, this death knowing that he was innocent he didn't want him to die this way because he knew that was this is the worst possible death you could experience
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and again you know the, the the emotional agony of having to deal with you know Judas betraying him his disciples deserting him um, just the emotional agony of course you know he's on the cross he's crying out to God you know why are you forsaking me um, you know just the emotional anguish on top of the physical abuse he suffered it's just yeah it's a miracle that he he lasted six hours.
1: What do you think about people who would look at this account, though, and say, you know, if you look at anything about Pilate and other sources, the idea of him being merciful and compassionate doesn't really mesh to where. So, it's kind of, we should kind of be skeptical of that the Bible is really giving us an accurate account of Pilate here when he talks about Pilate trying to save Jesus.
0: Well, not only Pilate, um... But also, remember he tried to get off, and and he's trying to get Herod Antipas, the one who killed um, John the Baptist, also to free Jesus. And so both of them kind of come across um, as guys that aren't as cruel as they were through history. I mean, Pilate—you can as you study Pilate, you see that he was really this guy from rags to riches. He really, you know, if history is correct, when you study his, you know, his history. He really rose through the ranks. He wasn't mm-hmm. this guy that that came from affluence. He wasn't born with a silver spoon, he really worked his way up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But history does does record that Pilate himself was quite cruel. Um oftentimes when you don't have power that's checked, um, you know, it's history shows that when people when humans are entrusted with a lot of power, they often abuse it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's evidence that Pilate himself abused it. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly Pilate himself um, you know, knew of Jesus before, and there's just, I mean, obviously he, he, he's, he, he's putting Jesus and Barabbas together and saying, who, who do you want free? Well, he, Barabbas is someone who was an insurrectionist, so obviously Pilate hates him, um, and he's probably growing tired of the Jewish religious leaders. Um, and so I think there's a lot of factors that would show that, that Pilate himself, um, you know, first of all, I don't think he, it was a big deal to him to kill Jesus like it was the Jewish religious leaders. I think Mm -hmm. he is just getting tired of dealing with them. And uh, obviously Pilate's wife telling him, hey, you know, this guy's innocent. I mean, he's just dealing with a lot of things that I think would show that he's, that's not inconsistent given his brutality that's recorded in in history. Um, I don't think it's inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Okay,
1: let's move on, Ben. Day nine, Jesus really isn't doing a whole lot on day nine, is he?
0: Well, this is probably the least eventful day. Um, you can make the argument that he, he rested three times during his last ten days.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but this is, a, this is another Sabbath. But clearly, he's in the tomb. But uh, what I see, and again, this is debated by scholars, but I see that the Jewish religious leaders are very active on the Sabbath. Now, if you study this, the Gospels, it was healing on the Sabbath that incensed the religious leaders. They, that's one reason why they wanted him to die, To kill him was because he did work on the Sabbath. That's how strict the Sabbath was. Mm -hmm. But here, it seems like on the the Sabbath, they're trying to to go to Pilate, and they're they're working. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing, especially since it's the Passover time, where the law will be heightened. Um, Jesus himself is resting, and you see in Hebrews that he himself is going before the Father in heaven... So spiritually, Jesus is quite active. Um, But here on earth, it looks like the Jewish religious leaders are doing things they shouldn't be doing. And the hypocrisy of working on the Sabbath, you know, when they wanted Jesus killed, one of the main reasons why they wanted Jesus killed was because he healed on the Sabbath or worked on the Sabbath. Uh, Again, you begin to see how pride and insecurity have really blinded the religious leaders to do things that they know they shouldn't be doing. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think we could also say that this day was probably one of the most hopeless days in history.
0: Mm. Well, I, I can imagine the disciples themselves are probably the, the most hopeless at this time.
1: Hmm. Now, then we finally come to the final day, day 10, and, you know, not much of significance happened on this day, for did it? <laughs>
0: Well, of course, uh, I, I'm going to understand your humor.
1: Yeah, um, I should have warned you, I'm, I'm one of the most sarcastic people you ever meet.
0: No, no, you're, you're, you're fine. I, you're nothing compared to some people I know. But uh, I have some work to do. <laughs> obviously, people people obviously focus on Easter Sunday and the uh, on Easter morning. Um, most churches have sunrise services. A lot of churches will have a breakfast after the sunrise service. And uh, it's not uncommon that Easter lunch is is a big deal, that people go out to lunch on Easter. Uh, it's one of the busiest days for restaurants, actually. Mm-hmm. But one thing that stood out to me was the evening of Easter. And that's something that often doesn't get discussed too much, where Jesus makes his appearances to his disciples, um, and then he gives them the commission. And we often call it the Great Commission. And uh, all four Gospels, um, obviously the a longer ending of markets debated. Um, but all four Gospels has some form of a commission at the end where it's not it, where Jesus says you need to go into the world and share this message, that it just can't stop here, that part of the reason why I spent so much time with you is so that when I'm gone, you can continue the message. And this podcast exists because of the faithfulness of the disciples mm-hmm. um, 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that we miss out on a great great um Easter event when we don't give give we don't give um attention to the evening of Easter. We spend so much on on the morning, I mean rightly so, Jesus rises from the dead. But the evening, he, the Easter evening when he commissions his disciples, that's very significant. Cuz it's just a reminder that, you know, because of this great thing that's happened that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that we're to share it, that we can't just keep it to ourselves. That it's such good news that we need to tell other people about it. And uh, I know, I know you're not a coffee fan. I am, and I have this great coffee from Indonesia. Uh, one one bean has been aged eight years. The other bean's been aged five. And I always argue that it's the best cup of coffee that you'll ever have. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited about this coffee that I want people to try it. It's just so good that I want them to experience it especially if they like coffee. Now, obviously, if you came, I wouldn't give it, give you any because you're not a coffee band. But I have good tea, too.
1: Yeah, I'll be praying for yourself if it's any consolation.
0: <laughs> uh, well, your, your father-in-law likes coffee. I've given him a cup. He's not a connoisseur of coffee, but he, he'll, he'll drink some. But, uh, you know, I, I got, the good news is just so good that I need to be sharing it with everyone else. I mean, if this coffee gets me so excited that I want coffee drinkers to drink it, well, how much greater... The death and resurrection of our Lord.
1: <clears throat> when you talk about how uh, this podcast, for instance, exists because of what those guys did back then, I was thinking but I have encountered some people who have said, you know, you think if God wanted to get his message out to the whole world, he would have chosen a much better way. And I say, um, hold on a second. This religion started as a small, minuscule movement in in an out-of-the-way place that no one really cared about at the time, in the Middle East. And now, 2,000 years later, there are billions of people all over the world who ascribe to Jesus as Lord and know of him. I think God did a pretty good way of getting the word out based on that.
0: He knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He knows what he's doing. It's kind of like the principle of compound interest, how... You know their first investments the first few years really don't see much, but as you go and go and go um eventually you know mm. becomes a lot of money and uh you know, Warren Buffett didn't make his first billion until he was sixty five because mm. he knew he knew the principle of compound interest, and you see that a similar principle applied to Jesus, how he knew that investing in disciples and disciples investing in disciples and then them investing eventually leads to a to reaching the world, which we're we very cl- if we haven't done it yet, we're very close mm-hmm. uh, to doing, which is one of the reasons why Jesus gave us that commission, was that the whole world needed to hear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually talking with Ari the other day about how some people are from a more futurist perspective. Uh, my wife's futurist, but she doesn't believe in a rapture, for instance. I'm an Orthodox preterist. And I said, you know you find all these people are wanting to. You. Get the third temper built or breed a red heifer or something that just so they can think that Jesus will return sooner so, You know, if there's one passage I think tells us something that we can do to have Jesus return sooner, it's Second Peter 3, and I think it's one about doing evangelism, so you may speed his coming. I mean, If all these mm-hmm. people are wanting the end to come so much sooner, why aren't they out there doing evangelism instead of trying to breed red cows,
0: well, I'm am amen to that. And I often pray, you know, that, that God will just even speed it up quicker. He says, well, Lord, why don't you do to to the rest of the world what you did to Paul?
2: Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: That was really good. Let's just, you just take care of it. So mm. but one of the greatest privileges I've had was to travel the world, especially to the unreached peoples. I, like I told you, I, I go to Indonesia. Mm. Um, one of the definitely unreached places i've been to other parts of the world and i I know your father in law has been to even more places than i have yeah Um, and then rick warren has actually been to every known country um actually he's rick warren has been to more countries than the united nations acknowledges i think rick warren's been to almost 200 i don't think that the united nations even acknowledge there are 200 nations that exist so clearly you know one mark of a disciple is they're going out and making disciples of all nations, not just staying in America, in our case.
1: You know, there are some people who ask, where, why doesn't God just go out there and make things plain to everyone and such? And, and say, God's not going to encourage laziness. And then when it comes to the question of those you've never heard of, tell people, like, we don't have a clear answer on this in the Bible because I think we're not meant to have one. Jesus comes to us and he gives us a great commission. That's Plan A. There is no Plan B mentioned. You just do Plan A. He does not give you a backup strategy to lean on in case you don't do the mission.
0: Yeah, I always tell people that if Jesus, if if God were to do what you want to do,
2: mm-hmm.
0: basically the whole world would just explode. I always tell people that you know God's holiness does not allow him to come in contact with impurity um and so if god were to do what what people want him to do just change it i mean you would see i mean bodies everywhere i mean much like ananias and sapphira i mean the presence of god is that powerful that it cannot tolerate sin um and so i always tell people that god had to do it this way to for our sake because if he were to do it this way um and just come down and change everything it would just Basically, the whole world would just explode like a like an atomic hydrogen bomb. That's how just powerful God is. And you just look at the Bible and you look at um, Uzzah. You know, in the Old Testament, when he touches the when he touches the Ark, he's just trying to straighten it. He's worried the Ark's going to break. But as soon as he touches it, he dies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And That's really what would happen. Um, you know, in a microcosm. That's really what happened in a, in a macro level. Uh, if If God were to do what everyone wants to do, that's why he had to come in the incarnate Christ, because Mm. that's the only form that he could come down without totally wiping us all out. Mm. And you see that when God's physical presence was dwelling in the Old Testament, uh, it was really rough for the nation of Israel.
1: Mm. We do have to talk some about resurrection, of course. I wrote a post this week on my blog about whatever happened to a resurrection and I'm because you, know, you can say, "Well, geez, there's a resurrection of projects going on. People are talking about the resurrection and such." And I said, "Well, yeah, people are. But the thing is, I was thinking about this because I mean, I'd been to a funeral just last week, and we had someone who gave a eulogy. Someone else who came up and spoke afterwards. Parents came up and spoke, and then I came up to speak a little bit and give a closing prayer and when I spoke, I made sure to mention resurrection because no one else had done that at all. Mm. And when I when, when I did my grandmother's funeral, she died a few months after Allie and I were married. When I did mm. her funeral, I was one of three pastors assigned to do it. And the second, one of the pastors was her own pastor and he got up and said, right now she is experiencing the power of a resurrection and I was sitting back there waiting my turn and I'm thinking, I'm sorry, Pastor, I'm just looking and I see a dead body right now. I don't think she's experiencing the resurrection. And then I had an aunt who died a few years back and at her funeral, pastor at the end said, You know, then we turn to First Thessalonians 4. We get that blessed hope of the Apostle Paul. I mean, finally, someone's finally going to say it. And he says, that we will see our loved ones again in heaven. And just, Amen. Uh, I, well, at that point, I kind of dropped down because that's not what Paul is talking about, though, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's talking about the resurrection. And then think about how I can go to so many church services and when I give a car to salvation, it's all about so I can go to heaven when I die. It's kind of what happens with this body and the resurrection it just doesn't seem to matter to Christians anymore. It's all about just going to heaven.
0: Well, we, uh, we understand that at the same coming, the culmination of our sanctification is when mm. our soul is reunited mm. with our bodies. Right. In a glorified state. And much most scholars acknowledge, these, these are systematic theologians now. Not, I'm a biblical scholar like your father-in-law. Right. But the systematic theologians will acknowledge that um, this body will probably reflect the glorified body, which the risen glorified body that Jesus had, mm. will be very similar.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, mm. But, you know, the, the resurrection is probably the greatest hope. Um, mm. There's no other religion in the world that gives as much hope as, as Christianity. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, when, when, when nations experience great tragedies, they don't turn to atheists. You don't see Richard Dawkins... Or Christopher Hitchens being called when um, 9/11 happened, you see the ministers being called, Um, you see churches flooded during national tragedies, and it's just uh, you know that's one of the great things we have in this tough world is the hope that the the world to come will be better, and part of that is to be reunited with a a glorified body, and my my body is definitely not what it was you know twenty some years ago. Um, and so I'm already feeling the effects. And I'm only in my 40, 40s. And I'm feeling the effects of my body just not functioning like it used to. Um, I need to be more athletic like your father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's hope for me you know, to be reunited with, a, with a, body, you know, a new body. And there's hope for me, all the loved ones I've lost, uh, to see them again. Mm-hmm. And it's the resurrection of Christ that's the foundation of that hope
1: I also like to just see people realize that resurrection means a whole lot more than just yeah. okay Jesus rose so Christianity is true and it's even a whole lot more than just what happens at the end for resurrection means some things here and now and one thing it means for instance is God came in a body and Jesus rose in a body and one of the things that tells us is, our bodies do matter. And what we do with our bodies matters a great deal.
0: Amen. Mm-hmm. It really does. The body is a temple. And, uh, you know, we definitely need to steward it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, as we get near to the end, we've reviewed the Passion Week. And what would you help people walk away with <clears throat> after all of this? mm <clears throat>
2: Well, in the
0: end, Nick, um, we all are, are, are in a fight in this world. Mm-hmm. Sin has invaded this world. And as I struggle more and more, I realize that God reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ. How you know, volumes and volumes have been written on who God is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you really, really get to see and discover who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And I guess in the end, I really hope that people can get, get to know God better. And as they get to know God better, they get to know themselves better. And as they get to know God better and themselves better, they'll live better. And mm-hmm. I think you get a lot of that through Jesus' final 10 days. You see his priorities. You see how he lived. You see how, you know, I mean, you see it even in the Garden of Gethsemane when the, when the, when the uh, guards are trying to arrest him, he says, you know, ergo a me, I am. And they fall to the ground. He has that great power there to protect himself, but he chooses not to in submission to his father. And I just feel that a lot of the Christian life is just joyfully submitting to the plans of God. And sometimes that, oftentimes that means um, suffering. Mm -hmm. But there's a joy that's so much greater to experience. And I think that's when we, we talked about how horrible and cruel the cross was, or well, how glorious, you know, Easter Sunday morning when Jesus resurrected was. And that's really a microcosm of the Christian life, how the present suffering we experience is really a path to greater joy than the world can ever give us. And I just hope that people, through seeing Jesus Christ in a deeper way, I mean, there's no greater apologetic than to look at the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, everyone acknowledges that Jesus was a human being, or was a historical figure, um, probably mo- the most controversial historical figure that ever walked the earth.
1: You'd be surprised how many people I meet who don't acknowledge that one.
0: Well, you know, people have their choice, but the mm-hmm. I mean, facts are the facts. I mean, we live in in 2017, and uh, I know that they use CE now, but, uh, you know, it was, A- it was AD 2017, in the year of our Lord. Jesus literally changed the course of history, so... I hope that people from this book will, will just come a, a deeper knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and um, you know, I, I'm hoping that people who don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord can mm-hmm. read that. That would be the greatest, exciting, most exciting thing for me, is to see someone who didn't have faith in Jesus come to faith in Jesus through reading this book.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the things you mentioned that's important about is suffering, because huh. it's amazing that so many people look at suffering in Christian life, think like dang, I, I must be doing something wrong if I'm undergoing suffering. It's like, no, okay. suffering's kind of part of the course. It's what's expected.
0: Well, that's really part yeah, that, that's really the message of the New Testament, Um, is that suffering is just part of this world because this world has a, a great sin. Um, sin has invaded this world. It's become, this world wasn't, God's original intention wasn't for this to be a sinful world, but it is. Mm-hmm. And if you want to experience Christ deeply, suffering is the path until he comes. And so that's the ultimate test of our faith is do we believe that our ultimate comfort comes in the world to come? Or do we believe that the, our comfort is, is in this world? And you can kind of see how people live their lives, where their faith really is. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the American culture is probably one of the worst cultures to experience this servant life. Um, where you give up all for the sake of the kingdom.
1: Mm. Because the amazing thing is we are blessed with so much more in the American culture, maturity and such. And we tend to complain about evil for most. Meanwhile, you go over to some other cultures where they have far, far less. And they are the most joyful, happy people you can meet.
0: Well, that's been my experience traveling overseas. I mean, predominantly, I go to countries, I mean, pretty much every country I've been to, um, even Europe, is a step below the United States. But when you go to third world countries, you see that relationships is such a higher priority for them, um, that they do have time for you. I always tell people in the third world, don't be jealous of Americans. Um, They're not as rich as you are.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Obviously, you know, the love of mammon is part of the sinful nature and so they don't always believe me. But uh, yes, I agree with you that there's greater joy when you have
1: less. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of our job as Christians is to just learn to be more thankful. And one of the greatest things I've ever come to realize in my life is to realize God doesn't owe me a single thing. My you that know, tells me everything that I have is a gift thing. And-
0: Amen. Well, I believe that uh, the founder of Habitat for Humanity isn't he from Atlanta, Millard Fulmore or something? Or um, is, is Habitat for Humanity based in um, Atlanta or in that I, area?
1: I have no idea on that one, honestly. But the but
0: the founder, you know, was was originally a very rich person, and part of how he came to found Habitat for Humanity was he gave away his fortune. I think over two million dollars at that time. <coughs> Um, that was part of what led him to found Habitat for Humanity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So he found the greater joy in giving away his wealth, and after that, that's really the biblical model: is you experience real joy, not by advancing in the world, but by descending. Mm-hmm. In, and uh, that's part of the reason why we wanted to adopt again, because we just saw that that's the way. You know, the Bible says that you serve, you you, you gain your life by losing it.
1: Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dr. Chung, we've uh, come to the end of our time here. We have to be wrapping things up. Do you have a a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more?
0: Uh, if they would like to contact me, my email is MikeChung330 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. That's all one word, MikeChung330 at gmail.com. they are welcome to shoot me an email um, My book is The Last King of Israel, Lessons from Jesus' Final Ten Days. It's on Amazon. They can purchase it uh, on Kindle, or on. they can go to Stock, which is the publisher that publishes the book. So if they're interested in the book, that's where they can go. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if anyone is interested, I do have it up on Amazon right now. The Kindle version right now is $9.99. The hardcover is 42 dollars and the paperback is 23, so whichever format works for you, just get a copy of it. Uh, do you have any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Well,
0: it's been a privilege. Thanks so much for having me on, Nick. I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's life is about Jesus increasing and us decreasing. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the work of my book will help all of us increase in Jesus and decrease in us.
1: In mm-hmm. It's in John, three, John 3.30 good way of putting it well I'd like to thank you for coming on hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime I would love to thank you for having me on you're welcome for for the time thank you for the time and I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Stephen Bedard on talking about being a pastor with autism for Autism Awareness Month for now I am Nick Peters and I'm signing off